Now I get it. She just said, Pastor Kevin, you went, shh. I'm like, aha! Now I know. Hey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now you don't have to be. Now you can be nice. But, but, I, I, but I actually heard the, yeah, Pastor Kevin. Ah, we're finishing up, if I can do it, we're going to finish up the Wars of Religion today. But we have to be able to kick it and see if I can if I can get this done. We've been fighting over everything. Oh, hi, hon. We've been fighting over everything. Uh, even down to how to read prophecies. The, Pro the Protestants and the Catholics are fighting. And this, this becomes really important for the history of the church and how we look at prophecies today. Up until you get to where we're at now, these late 1500s, there are two basic ways of viewing biblical prophecies in the church. Uh, for the last 1,500 years, how have they been looking at Daniel? How have they been looking at Revelation? Both of them are stepping off the fact that when you talk about biblical prophecies, they're not just talking about future things. Nathan was a prophet because he saw truth and spoke it, right? Not just because of... A prophet isn't like what they talked about the, the oracle of Delphi. You go and find out stuff of what's going to happen soon. A prophet is somebody who oozes God's truth out their pores. Right? This is what God feels. So both of these perspectives are coming off of that. The first one is called the preterist interpretation um, from the Latin word preter, meaning past. And what they would say is that Daniel, John, whomever, are speaking God's truth about their historical context, but in coded ways. They're, they're, they're just talking about um, the fall of Jerusalem. They're just talking about Babylon, etc., but they're doing it coded, either because God presented it to them in coded ways, I mean, they're just, they're just saying what they actually saw from God, or because they felt like, John felt like, well, I didn't actually have a throne room visitation, I never actually saw God or angels or things, but this is the only way I can talk about Nero, this is the only way I can talk about Domitian, this is the only way I can talk about the fall of Jerusalem without getting into some serious trouble. So I'm going to have to couch everything in poetical terms. Okay? That's the preterist take on things. So, you have a Dutch theologian named Hugo Grotius who's trying to kind of bridge the gap between being a Protestant and a Catholic. And he agreed with an early Christian writer named Eusebius who said, Revelation is actually, uh, actually just trying to talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's what that is. It's not about anything in the future. It's not about anything in the past. It's just code words for, uh, for what happened then. So, you can be fully preterist. Nero Domitian was the, the, either one of those guys is the beast, or maybe he was the Antichrist. It's so coded, we're not sure which one it is, but, but Nero, yeah, he was the beast. Um, when the Bible talks about a time of great tribulation, that's when the Romans are slaughtering Jews in the streets of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's no second coming of Christ coming, um, and any kind of millennial reign, anything like that. This is just talking about the fact that judgment fell on Jerusalem, God is still sovereign. Okay? Or you can be partially preterist. You can say, well, no, Revelation is about the first century, but Jesus, Jesus specifically said he was coming again, so that part is actually still coming up. Okay? So, do you understand where the preterists are coming from? People who are, so they would read any kind of biblical prophecy. Um, it didn't, it, it's, it's never talking about stuff coming up. It's always talking about the stuff going on in coded terms, as if it's stuff coming up. What's your take on this? I really shouldn't. I should just push through, but the whole point of this class is understanding. So, 
can't just do that. You can't just do that. Alright, what? Looking back, you can see it was more than that. Okay. Well, if you read it, it does sound more, it does sound a lot more about the coming of Christ. What just Than just a a code of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter. Well, that's a good point. Literally, it's, it's presented in future tense. I mean, they're literally saying this is what's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, it, it becomes a lot... Well, so it becomes a lot easier to read directly if you, if you say, well, it says this is what's going to come up in the future. Okay? Anything else? Don't we still do what today? Oh, sure, there are a lot of people that are preterists today. There are whole churches that are preterists. Look at what's going on in the world, right? Bible, code, and all that. Um, Those kind of books. Somewhat, yes. Yeah. Um, there's a second school of thought that we need to bring up called the, histor the historicist interpretive model, saying, well, Daniel and John are not trying to talk about future events, and they're not trying to talk just about first century events. They're trying to talk about historical events in general. And again, they're putting it either that's the way God presented it, or they're putting it in this way because this is the only way they can get across. But it can be generalized to any historical thing. Um, the, tr the prophets are speaking truth that doesn't change. So if you're talking about tribulation, if you're talking about antichrists, that's not just a first century thing, and it's not just a 21st century thing. It's an any century thing. So Martin Luther, Jean Calvin, most of the Protestant leaders of the, of the day were historicists, and they'd say, well, there's not like the Antichrist is going to be a person who's coming up. The Antichrist is, there's always an Antichrist around. It's not that there's a time of great tribulation coming up. There's always times of great tribulation. The, the, the prophets aren't trying to tell us stuff that's going to happen. They're just telling us stuff that happens all the time. Uh, Luther said, the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. That's, that's what that is. It's a perfect example of Antichrist. William Tyndale said, well, the Antichrist is any man who defrauds his neighbor, any man who, who only lives out a ceremony kind of Christianity, any, any person that, that takes advantage of the poor, anybody who does something contrary to what Christ talks about, that's the Antichrist that these prophecies are talking about. Okay? So, what's your take on the historicists? Yes? So the Messiah is anybody Well, except that, I hear you, except that they would say, well, no, that's talking, the, the narrative of Jesus is talking about an individual Messiah. He is the ultimate Messiah. Though they would say, and rightly, that the Jews would have acknowledged multiple, many Messiahs over the years. Anybody who is anointed is a little M, Messiah. David was anointed. He was a little M, Mashiach, little M, Messiah. The capital M, Messiah that we're looking for, that's Jesus, because he historically was that. But anybody who would come to help is a little M Messiah, but um, that whole second coming thing, again, there is no second coming coming. Um, although some of the historicists would say, well, yeah, that's different. That's not prophecy. That's a promise of Jesus. So, yeah, he's coming back. But that whole rapture in the sky, is that in the tribulation, not tribulation? Well, yeah, that's, they're like, that, that, they wouldn't understand that. That would be crazy talk to them. You got a smile on your face, Michael. What, what are you thinking about? The, no, no, other Michael. 
said, you know, we see these things all the time, so, I mean, still. Yeah, and I run into this several times where people are like, well, it's, it, all it is is it's just trying to talk about your context, whatever your context is. Um, there's always going to be a time of great tribulation. Yes? Well, you know, you see that through the ages. I mean, Hitler was the Antichrist. Everybody, you know, everybody sees. And, is, and everybody trying to interpret what the Bible says. There are lots of different stories, mm -hmm. and there, nobody... Uh, quote-unquote, has the uh, correct answer no. exactly what's going to happen. But there are people who have written whole books saying, except I think I might have the correct answer now. Exactly. Right. But even that, is Hitler the Antichrist? <clears throat> is a third school of thought. The historicists say, sure, Hitler's an Antichrist. If you say the Antichrist, as if there was one who was coming up, that's a third school of thought. Now, these guys also, the historicists also argue that prophecies like Daniel's 70 weeks or John's three and a half years in Revelation can be understood as explaining the history of everything that led up to the present time. So, for instance, maybe John, when he was talking about that three and a half years, uh, maybe he was prophesying that after the Council of Nicaea met in, in 325, kind of a dubious summary of questionable date to try to start dating these things, but everybody who ever says Bible code or start dating, they're always like, I just happened to start on, on, on in John 3, verse 6. And if you count back from that, you say, where do you start always betrays what you were looking for. But anyway, let's just arbitrarily choose that when, when the Council of Nicaea helped start the Catholic Church in 325, did that actually shut up? When it started the Catholic Church in 325, three and a half years worth of days worth of years, so 1260 years, after that was going to be the beginning of God's judgment against the Pope, which would put it in, you know, 1585. By the way, I'm writing this in 1585. So if you'll notice, my completely, I'm not interpreting anything. I'm just looking at Scripture. And I'm not being arbitrary. I'm looking at the Council of Nicaea as I should. And we just clearly see that that whole three and a half years thing brings us to this. No, 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 it's, it's, no, it's, 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 it's Council of Nicaea. Where would you start? So Only... you start with Council of Nicaea? Exactly. Why didn't you start with death of Jesus? Why didn't you, just, why didn't you start with the Reformation? Because it's, it's 1585, and I figured out how 1585 is when I was... This is where it gets colorful, because everybody always thinks, well, that would be about now, wouldn't it? You know, whatever, whatever else they're trying to say, everybody always figures out, oh, that would be about now. So, Jehovah's Witness. That would be... That'd be 1914, 16, 17. That'd be 1919. No, you, go, you keep having to shift that. No, no, no. Yeah. He, oh, he did come back. He was just invisible. Yeah. Okay. So, what's interesting is you go, you break down these prophecies as outlines of history in a way that ultimately leads to the creation of this new interpretive format called dispensationalism, where you talk about history being broken down into various dispensations. That there is an age of innocence, there is a covenant age, there is a church age, there is a millennial age. You've heard of dispensationalism, right? So, this idea of this breakdown, you're right. Because all these prophecies and things are really speaking to breakdowns of history. That's speaking to how we got to this point today. But it's interesting because what we think of as dispensationalism that kicked in in the 19th century, even though it started 
with things that they pulled out of history of this historicist mindset was actually tends to use a third mindset that we're referring to that actually was coming together in 1585. A third mindset. Francisco Rivera is a Jesuit from central Spain that says, okay, this whole preterist and historicist thing, no matter how you slice it, Rome comes out smelling pretty bad. We always are the bad guys. We end up being the Antichrist and all these things, and that stinks, and I'm tired of that. Um, so how about we do something else? Instead of just seeing prophecies as coded expressions of contemporary contexts of the writers, the preterist, and instead of just seeing the symbolic breakdowns of church history leading up to now, whenever now is, the historicist, how about we're going to go with the oldest Jewish most direct way of reading Bible prophecies about the future. What's the most direct way of reading a Bible prophecy that says, let me tell you about the future? Pardon me? As if it were about the future, right? How about we, if it says that this is something that's coming up, how about we say this is something that's coming up? The futurist perspective. What a novel idea, right? I should say, each one of these, the preterist, the historicist, and, and the futurist, all argued that really this is the first way of doing this. This is the, this is the original way that people read prophecies. I would argue looking at the way Jews read their prophecies, that the futurist was actually the first way that they read prophecies. If, if somebody comes along and says, um, there are going to be 70 weeks and then this, the Jews would go, huh, I wonder when those 70 weeks start. They assume if you're saying something is coming up, what you meant was something is coming up. So I would argue technically Francisco is correct that the futurist was the original way of reading prophecies. Yes? The issue is, though, that it might have been futurist when it was written, but a lot of histories happened up to today, so... Well, well and that's the, that, okay, that's the fun thing, is what about, uh, what about Jesus saying this temple will be destroyed? Do you read that from a... His, uh, uh, is that a preterist thing? Is that a historicist thing? Or is that a futurist thing? Because it was destroyed 40 years after he died, which was like 2,000 years ago. So what is it? You go, well, preterist would mean Jesus was talking about his immediate context. He was talking about, he was really just talking about his body. He knew that he was going to die. And he phrased it that way so that people wouldn't freak. Which is partially true. He was, he was alluding to that. But at the same time, he was talking about the temple. So you can't just be preterist. And you go, okay, then historicist. He was talking about his specific context um, about temples getting destroyed, including his body, including the temple, etc. That people are always ripping down God's stuff. And I think that is true. But you're still left with going, I think he meant the temple was going to get destroyed, because he's talking physically about the temple, too. But that didn't happen until 40 years after his death. So even though it's 2,000 years ago for us, technically, if Jesus was talking not only about his body, but about the actual temple being destroyed 40 years from then, that would be the futurist perspective. Because he was talking about, it, hey, this is something that's going to happen, and by that he meant something that was going to end up happening. I don't want to lose you, I want to clarify. Okay. Anyway. So, John said that Christ is going to reign for a millennium prior to final judgment against the fallen world. Then he's going to reign for a millennium prior to a final judgment against the fallen world. That's, that's what's going to happen. Now it's just a matter of figuring out how. 
and it hasn't happened yet, so that's going to be in some future time. So, this is Francisco's whole point. If Rome were the Antichrist, if these prophecies really are pointing to Rome being an Antichrist, it must be after our good godly popes have been removed from office. Not current Rome, not the church now, but some future corruption of the church. Then it would be an Antichrist. So they're working now to make sure that corruption doesn't happen. Exactly. We need to keep it. Now, what's going to happen? How do our godly popes get expelled and some corrupt church take its place? How might, you're sitting in the 1500s, how might the Catholics say, our good, godly, we can trace it back to Peter, papacy, get undermined by some false church? Yeah, some kooky Protestant is probably going to do it, right? So, Francisco's whole point is, oh, yeah, that's not going to happen in the future. Not now. Rome isn't. The, but the biggest reason why Rome might end up being an Antichrist is if you guys get in charge. So, what's interesting is, even though it comes from a Catholic, and it comes from a Catholic who is specifically trying to go to the, to the Protestants, Protestants totally love this. They jumped on this. They're like, wait, that works. It probably is the oldest way of doing it, and it's, it's also the most literal way of doing this. Especially like the Anabaptists, who are, who are saying, try to do a little interpretive hoop, uh, hoop jumping with the Bible. Just, what does the Bible actually say? Let's just, literally, what is it saying? They're like, oh, we love this. Oh, sure, plus it fits with their whole, we ought to fix all this stuff. The idea that, that all this is coming up, that the world will find some sort of dramatic closing point at some point in the future, totally fit with their mindset. And so all of a sudden you have a ton of uh, Protestants going, oh, I love this line of thinking, and jumping onto the bandwagon. And so all of a sudden you got people talking about, well, wait a minute, Are, is Christ going to rapture his people before a time of tribulation, or in the middle of a time of tribulation, or at the end of the time of tribulation? And it's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and there really are going to be two witnesses, and they're really taking it literally. This is future history. This is telling me what's going to come up. You ever seen any graphs like this before? It could be here, could be here, could be here. Okay. And then they're going to say, well, wait, 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 what, do you, what does he mean by millennia? I, I, I believe it's going to be a second coming, and then he's going to be, it's coming up. But what does it mean when we say that we, he's, going to, he's going to reign for a millennium? Is he, is he going to reign for a millennium and then appear? Is he going to appear, then reign for a millennium, and then do final judgment? Is the millennium actually more symbolic of the fact that God is sovereign during this time, and so the millennium is actually going on in heaven, becomes a debate. But all those debates are still talking about stuff what's coming up. Right? So, all of that, anytime you have that discussion, if any of this rings true to you at all, then this is something that you can say, thank you, Francisco the Catholic Jesuit, back in 1585. But all this stuff about exactly what's going on, all the Bible charts about the, the future history of things, all the charts about when the millennium will be, what the millennium probably is, all that, you can point back to this guy and say, thank you for making entire series of books sitting on our <laughs> library shelves. What do you think about this one, about the futurists? You're all like, you're all like no, but the other one. Um, I like the futurist, but um, 
I, I don't think uh, that we found ourselves were capable of actually interpreting Why? And I think that's, I think, special nickel for you later. Why? Why is it that there's so many different books on so many different levels about so many different takes on it? Because according to the futurist, it would happen yet. It hasn't happened yet. Now, someday, it will. But there are two key issues here. First off, I'm going to stem off what Michael just said. If my whole job is writing books about stuff that hasn't happened yet, it can't happen, right? It can't happen. And, and this is the biggest problem with, with messianic cults. If I'm the messianic fi you know, figure, at some point, I, I, I've got to lose. You know, at some point, the world government's got to crucify me or something, so, which is why so many messianic cults end up with their founder being dead somewhere along the line. Because there's, you can only keep people going for so long in an apocalyptic cult. Before people go, it's actually not that bad. No, we live in the apocalypse. We live down the street from a hagen it's, it's The world is not that bad. You know? um, but the second thing is, this is all expressed poetically. For whatever reasons. I mean, the historicists, the futurists, the preterists, they all say it's, po it's expressed poetically. It's not laid out as clearly as, say, the narrative portions of scripture. Apparently for a reason. Whether God is giving preterists and historicists poetical ways to talk about their present context, or he's specifically giving us poetical ways of discussing future history, for whatever reason, God wants this to be a subject of interpretation, not just data. If God wanted it to be data, we could outline the history of the future, just like we outline the history of which kings were kings of Israel and Judah at which times. But he seems to be going out of his way to say, I'm giving you tons of details, but no keys as to how they all go together. You know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. That's going to be the order of events. But I also want you to remember one, two, three, four. Those are going to be a separate events too. You go, do those correspond to colors? Are those all in during blue? Are two of those during blue and two of those during violet? When did the one, two, three, four come in? Guy goes, oh, by the way, I want you to remember Squares are important, but not as important as circles. What does that mean? Just remember that. It's like, he's giving you all sorts of clues, but no conclusions about this other than thematic conclusions. Why might God say, I'm going to give you enough clues to tell you that I know exactly what's going to happen when? I'm not going to give you clues so that you know exactly what's going to happen when, but I'm going to make things very clear. Why might somebody do that? First of all, so uh, you can prepare yourself to be ready for the end of the Sure. And you can be um, on lookout when something that does happen when the Antichrist or something like that, you know not to follow it. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we can see because obviously he gave lots of prophecy that Jesus was coming and nobody saw that. So hopefully with all this prophecy we'll be able to see mm -hmm. what's And we're told specifically... Even by Paul, even within the Pauline corpus, he's like, be on the lookout for, for the Antichrist. He's coming, but even now the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. So you get a little bit of historicism and futurism in there, where he's like, oh, bear in mind, there's always going to be a spirit of Antichrist, but be aware of what's actually coming up. Yes? Yes, the whole point of this. Why did he so poetically speak about Genesis 1-1? Genesis 1 as a chapter. It's like, well, so that you know exactly how he created things. But really, do you? 
And so, but you're left with saying at the beginning of time, the key thing is that God created all things. And he gives us enough details that you're like, and he did it systematically. But he doesn't tell us exactly the format by which he did it. So it's debatable. But the part that's not debatable is that God knew what he was doing. He speaks about this as if he knew what he was doing then, and God was in charge of this. Ironically, at the end of the Bible, same idea. saying, I know what's coming up. I know all the details. And I'm on top of things. For as scared as people get about Revelation, the whole theme of Revelation is the good guys win. It is a positive book. It's just a realistically positive book. It's like, by the way, it's going to stink getting there. But the good guys do win. You overcome by the blood of your testimony. Really? Wait, does that mean I die? Ooh, in droves. But you overcome. I'm not going to pretend everything's happy, happy, good, good. But it ends well. There's a theme going. And, and so anytime God is poetical, I think it's amazing how many times we go, can I concretize that, please? Because we really want to concretize, and so we have a graph to explain this. And I'm like, not a horrible thing, but are you remembering the core theme is that God is sovereign, even in the midst of time of tribulation? It almost makes me sound almost historicist. And then I go, when you go through tribulatory times, even though it may not be the great tribulation, if God is sovereign during the great tribulation, how does he help you here? Maybe Jesus hasn't returned bodily yet. But if you believe that even in this time of absolute hellish conditions on earth, Jesus is still God and Jesus is coming for you, then can you trust when he says, I, I, I'm going to go prepare a place for you? Whether it's me bodily returning for you at the end of time or not, do you trust that I'm there for you? And that I'm prepared? And that nothing is throwing me? I tend to lean futurist because I tend to want to start by taking the Bible at its word, if it says something's coming up. It also tends to be the most elegant. It requires the least amount of interpretive hoop jumping. And yet, I'm all over the historicist saying, how do you apply that in your historical context? Uh, either one, yeah. You both buzzed in at the same time. Mine's really short. Okay. To make concrete. Yes. Okay, thank you. As opposed to abstract. Love. What do you mean by love? Hug. Concretize. That's all. Michael. Well, it seems like uh, common sense would say that there's at least some aspect of the historicist because when it was written, people were hearing it. Yep. Like God sent it to the world at this time for a reason. Yep. So even if there's a far future application of it, it seems like there has to be some near application to it or Yep. At, at, at which point then you can appreciate, especially if you say, well, I'm a futurist, you can still appreciate the historicist idea of saying, you do realize, if, if Revelation was written about the future, the fact that it was written after the destruction of the temple, the fact that God is writing it during a time of Nero and Domitian, you understand why God might want to say, okay, I want you to understand the future so that you understand your own personal context here. I know you're going through some really stinky times. It gets worse. It'll get worse. But I'll still be God, and I'll still be sovereign then, and it ends well. So even if you take a futurist perspective, it is completely healthy to go, but what would this have meant to those people at that time, and what does it mean to me at my time? So I, I feel bad about prophecy conferences that are all about stuff what's going to happen some other time. Because I'm like, yes. But you might lose, what is this supposed to do in your life today? Because remember, prophets aren't just Delphian oracles, 
they're there speaking truth to individual contexts. Okay. Speaking of the Jesuits, because I had to find some sort of segue. Speaking of the Jesuits, this is 1587 is the year that uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. I don't know where the emphasis is that, but I know Hideyoshi. Is it the second one? Toyotomi. This is the second to last. Yeah. Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Um, who controlled most of Japan. He's the purple bits there. It was at this point that he's taking over this last southern bit, and as part of that, he's expelling the Jesuits from Kyushu. He had grown up in this humble, poor childhood, um, a peasant, but he'd risen to this high, lofty shogunate, um, or proto-shogunate. And so he had this vision for an idealized Japan. Everybody knows their place. Everybody stays where they're supposed to do. We're going to structuralize and formalize everything. Style of dress never changes from this point. This is the way we dress from now on. It's Japanese to dress this way. Farmers stay farmers. Warriors remain warriors. And none of us should be converting to this European Kirishitan religion. Know your place. Just be happy you keep your heads. If you don't know your place, I'll chop your head off. And you go, well, then I'll, I guess I know my place. Aren't you happy I didn't chop your head off? Yes. So you're happy being a farmer? Sh sure. Be a farmer. Can I also be a... I'm sorry. What did you say? Then take out my sword and say, what did you say? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I said farmer. I said farmer. I'm happy being a farmer. Are you a bean farmer? <laughs> I mean, seriously. This is... He's like, I will ruthlessly enforce that everything stays exactly the way it is for all time. The language doesn't change. It's the beginning of having Japanese language cops. Did you try to coin a new phrase? Almost French. Anyway, to make his point, 1597, he had 26 Franciscan missionaries crucified in Nagasaki. And this included some Spaniards, a Mexican, uh, an Indian, but a lot of Japanese Franciscans. And he's like, I want you to understand, this ends now. This whole area of Kyushu was known as a Kirishitan province, a Kirishitan district, and that ends. We're stopping that. And the church is officially driven underground, but it's not destroyed. They start being called the Kakuri Kirishitans, the, the hidden Christians. And they have a whole movement of hidden Christians going on in Japan. 1632, 55 more Christians were killed in Nagasaki, which is also in that southern area. 1637, they, they lead a rebellion. They're like, no, 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 no. We've had 40 years of this. We've got enough Kirishitans here. We're, we're, we're going to have a Christian district. And so we're leading a rebellion. We're standing up. We're, we're going to take over the slightly dilapidated Hara Castle in Kyushu. And we're going to, we're going to have our own Christian area here. So 37,000 people were slaughtered. Most of them were peasants, women and children who, according to Hideyoshi and, and, his, and, uh, and Yesu and some of the other later ones, they didn't know their place. They tried to, they, you have peasants taking a castle as if they were lords, as if they were warriors. You have good um, Shinto people pretending that they're Christians. They don't understand that they shouldn't ever change. So, slaughter all. This is, this is their leader, Amaka Shushiro, and this is all the dead bodies of all the peasants he promised to protect. So, Hideyoshi is very popular still in, in, in Japan today because he's the guy who 
united all the daimyos, uh, brought everybody together for the last 500 years. They've had this solid culture. He abolished slavery. He set up the tea ceremony and said, we're going to have whole buildings set up for tea ceremonies and stuff. Um, established the castle system. This, we're going to control international trade. All this stuff. This absolute control over everything. If you look at Japan and think absolute control, absolute stylization, absolute uh, rigidity of form, really comes back to this guy. Now, it's always been part of their culture, but especially this guy, which is interesting. In fact, he's so popular, he's actually a player character on Pokemon Conquest. You can play Hideyoshi, and he's like uber tough. He's the, the coolest guy that you can do. So, wacky fun there. Fifteen eighty-eight, back to Europe, because still a little sideline over in Asia. But back to Europe. Philip II, you remember Philip II, right? He's been bouncing around for a while. Spanish Armada invaded England. If you remember last week, remember last week with Philip is supporting Henri de Guise into Paris. It's like ah oh, yeah, against King Henri the Third, weak guy, and the Huguenot Henri de Bourbon, Henry Bourbon, right? Because Randy keeps calling him Bourbon. So anyway, Henri de Bourbon. Not that, again, as I said last week, not that Philip even cared what was actually going on in France. So I couldn't care less who actually wins. I just want them destabilized. I'm fine. Henri's can murder Henri's for decades, for all I care. I just want to be able to invade England. And I don't want to have to worry about France. So let France fight France. So that worked. So 1588, he's like, time to invade England. Henri uh, de Guise is invading it marching into Paris, I'm going to take my Spanish Armada and go to England. Awesome. Pope Sixtus V says, that's awesome. We'll call it a crusade. You can take crusader taxes. We're going to grant indulgences. Anybody that anybody from Spain wants to rape or pillage, they can do anything they want in England because England's a bunch of Protestants. So this is a, this is a crusade against England, just like we had a crusade against the Muslims. Knock yourself out. It also kind of spooked them all that um, Elizabeth now had a colony in the New World. They've established a colony on Roanoke Island off the coast of the Carolinas in 1587. Now, here's the question. How can they do that? Didn't the Pope specifically give the New World to Spain and a little bit to Portugal? And Portugal got Africa, right? And then Portugal and Spain divvy up at the Far East. How can England say, nope, we're taking this part? Yeah, okay, both of those. It's like, hey, it's so far away. It's like, stop me. You know, that's case. B, they go, apparently, apparently we're not Catholic. You know, you're, you're, you're launching crusades. Every time, every time somebody keeps saying, Elizabeth is Protestant, they keep pushing her more Protestant. She started off, if you remember, pretty moderate, going out of her way to be moderate. And then people keep trying to assassinate her. Popes keep trying to assassinate her. Popes support uh, rebellions against her. Popes support crusades against her. So she keeps getting more and more Protestant. So the main argument is, I ain't Catholic. Well, but the Pope said that you don't get the new world. Yes, and I say the Pope is fat. I get to do what I want. I get to do whatever I want. How do they do that? Yeah. All right, so this Armada is kind of a big deal. They, they, they built 130 specially built ships. Why did they build specially built ships? Why did they have to build a whole new armada? Their last armada was 
Yeah, remember back in 1560, Piala Pasha, back at Derby's, went, went kaboom and took out most of their armada. The rest just limped back to Spain. Totally had to rebuild it. On the plus side, though, they've got 130 really good ships. Really good ships. Carrying 26,000 people, 26,000 warriors. Um, Fifteen sixty. So this is the last twenty eight years they've been rebuilding their ships. Well, that's I mean twenty thousand people, that's that's a generation. Yeah. So you got eight thousand sailors, uh, eighteen thousand what amounts to a marines. And they're prepared to go to Spanish Netherlands over here, because if you remember, these are all brown, right? So that's that's Spain over there. And that's Spain over there. So they were gonna go to Spanish Netherlands and pick up thirty thousand more troops. So they're gonna invade England with fifty six thousand men. And, and even though technically, even though the, technically the British had more ships, British had like 200 ships, they were almost double outgunned. These are Spanish ships that are just big, dreadnaughty, tough guy things. So the British tried to stop them, because they're passing through the English Channel to get to the Spanish Netherlands. They tried to stop them, but they couldn't stop them. They kept pounding on them and, ha and, and, and hassling them, but they could not stop them. They kept getting past them. I'm going to say that the British had three things going for them. First off is a guy named Sir Francis Drake, who rocked. This guy was amazing. He was like the Captain Kirk of his era, the Captain Horatio Hornblower, everyone. He's going, you keep pulling victory out of your hat. How do you do this? You keep being outgunned, but you keep doing smart stuff. Um, uh, he uh, set fire ships against them when they were in port in Calais. Which is, you take one of your own ships, or two or three of your own ships, you pack them full of gunpowder and tar and pitch, and you set them on fire and sail them toward the clump of French wooden ships in a harbor, who can't get out of the harbor. And so, the, by the time the French saw them coming, they, they, they didn't have time to do anything but hack their own, their own anchors off and get out of the port and stuff. So for the rest of the battles, they had no anchors. So if they desperately needed an anchor, you go, you don't have one. <laughs> Little things like that where you just go, no, you didn't stop them, you didn't destroy them, but man, you keep winning, and you keep winning. Second thing, they had crazy good luck. The weather gauge was always on their side. Uh, the weather gauge, uh, you, you're coming out of the sun, you're coming out of the wind. It, you have the best field position on the, on the ocean. Over and over again, they kept going, how did you get behind us? How did you get behind the sun? Wait, how did you get the, the, the wind? Right. Over and over again, and the British ships are lighter. And so they keep sailing. They don't have the guns, but they keep sailing circles around the Spanish, literally. And, and so the Spanish keep going, I can't hit them the way I want to hit them. Third thing, the Spanish were greedy. They were specifically under orders not to sink British ships. Capture them. We're still rebuilding our navy. We only have 130. They have 200. Steal the British ships. Capture them. So don't sink them. So don't use your big guns. Board them if you can. Use muskets to kill the guys. Don't sink the ships. Which is a pain because the ships are too fast to be hit. But the, uh, they have the, they're so tacky. They don't let us board them. You know, we keep trying to board them and then they move. And it's annoying. Whereas the British are like, we don't have the same guns that they do, but we have no problem with shooting our big guns at them. We may have half the guns that they do, but we're actually shooting ours. In fact, uh, there's a scene in, in uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean that actually evokes some of the battles that they had here. There was a point where the British were like sticking silverware and chains and things like that into their cannons 
because they've run out of cannonballs. They're like, anything, just shoot anything. Stick Bob in there, shoot it. You know, just anything, <laughs> just shoot anything at them. Um, whereas, archaeologically, when we uh, when we've uncovered some of the Spanish ships, a lot of them still had an almost full complement of cannonballs. It's like, you never shot back. These guys ran out of ammunition shooting at you guys, and you almost never shot back. Well, they wounded the Armada enough. They're like, I, we're pounded on. So even though we still have a lot of our ships left, they're, they're all broken down. Some of them are barely seaworthy. We got within sight of Spanish Netherlands, and we realized... There's no way we can actually land, take on troops, and make it to England. We've got to go back to Spain. We've got to refit. Because the British just keep pounding on our ships and pounding on our ships. We outgun them, but they're faster, and they keep shooting at us. So like, ah, uh, okay, do over. We'll do this again next year. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll refit. So they're, they're like, well, we can't go back through the channel. I mean, we just went, we, that was a gauntlet, man. I ain't going back through the channel. So we're just going to whip around. We're going to go around the, the Orkney Islands, the Hebrides, all that stuff. We're going to whip around. We're going to go around uh, uh, Ireland and, and Scotland, and we're going to make it back to Spain and refit and try this again later. Well, we still have some ships. And windy! They ran into a hurricane up in there. As, now, part of this is bad navigation, because they were closer to the, the shoals and, and the rocks in, in Ireland and Scotland than they realized. They turned east too early. So part of this is bad navigation, but part of this is just like the worst weather ever. And it's not really good weather up there in general, but it's horrible weather. You just get smashed the entire way home. I mean, from, from northern Scotland all around the coast of Ireland, it's just this constant bashing, bashing, bashing. And it's not like they could port anywhere. They couldn't just go in and go, well, let's go hang in Scotland. They don't like you. See a whole bunch of Spanish ships, they're, they're not really happy with you. So they just got pounded on of the original 136, 130 ships, 67 made it back to Spain, and most of them were not seaworthy anymore. It got demolished. They lost 16,000 men. It was a huge rout. Philip said, I set the armada against men, not God's wind and waves. I never... We should have won. We should have totally won. We outgunned them. We had more men. There's no reason we should have lost... But Elizabeth went on record as saying, God himself fought for England. God himself fought against the enemies of the true faith. You go, you keep making her more and more Protestant as time goes on. Actually, kind of yes! Actually, yes! She gave, she gave a famous speech where she's like, I don't have a man's body. I'm a frail woman, but I myself will fight against Spain. I'll lead the army. Yes! That is exactly what she did. Popular British rallying cry said, Jehovah blew his winds and they were scattered. So it's like Jehovah's on our side. 1590. Roald Alcali, remember? 1587 they were found. In 1590 they were found abandoned. Because the war with Spain, England hadn't been able to check on Roanoke for like three years. Didn't know what was going on there. They finally got back there and they found the colony had just disappeared. Even the buildings and fortifications were just People disappeared and no one's ever discovered what happened to the Roanoke colony. That's why it's referred to as the Lost Colony, which is a little bit of a crud. Because we actually we don't know, no, no, what happened, but we more or less know what happened. There's tons of clues as to what happened. But people are like, oh, the Lost Colony. Why? 
Well, part of it is that the English who, who were there, there was another hurricane, and they're like, we have to leave. We couldn't do an exhaustive search. We just found that it was abandoned, and we had to go away. But there's a lot of clues telling us what happened. The settlement was actually carefully dismantled. It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't just gone. It was dismantled carefully. So there wasn't a struggle, and it wasn't a rush. They quietly, calmly dismantled their own colony. Besides, they've been really good terms with the local natives. It's very not probable that they got in a fight with the Indians. Because the, the, the natives on the mainland, the natives on, on nearby Croatoan Island, an island that they'd originally even debated about settling on. Roanoke was not going to be their final destination. Roanoke was like a staging point, and they were even talking about Croatoan is probably a better island for us to be on. It's just, it's inhabited already. But I think it would, it's, it's got more going for it. That's, that's probably where we should go. For that matter, they were supposed to carve a Maltese cross somewhere if they had been under attack. So that later on, people could find them and say, ah, they apparently were destroyed. We found this Maltese cross. N nobody carved a Maltese cross. And if you go, well, maybe they didn't have time to carve a Maltese cross. Really? They had time to carve Croatoan on, on, on some fence posts. And somebody else on a, on a tree did at least CRO. And the local tribe said, yes, all the people moved to Croatoan Island and folded into the population. So the English said, we may never know what happened. <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah. They, they, they went to Croatoan Island and joined the Indians there. It just disappeared. It's like an act of God. Why? I don't know. That's a legit question, though. But, but that's, that's just as good an answer as any. Isn't there's like the idea that good Christian white Englishmen would just go be part of a Native American culture? That didn't happen. So where did they go? Mm -hmm. That the colonists from Roanoke came to Croton Island? Okay. How many of them were there? There was like, well, we, we don't know how many actually went. There was something like 80, I think, originally, three years before. How many were still alive? Maybe they, there was disease or something. Maybe only 40 went. Maybe only 20 left. We have no idea how many actually did. But they've done genetic testing on the Croton Island natives. And like, yeah, there's white blood in there. But then again, it might be from the 1800s. We don't yeah, know where it's from. Yeah. But it's like, huh. yeah, genetic testing. Yeah, there's, there's white blood in there. There's really no reason not to just say, oh, they must have gone to Croton. Except that it's a lost colony. <laughs> History Channel special. Um, i got to say that just because people, somebody asked me the other day, when are we going to get to the Americas? We just did. Now we're, we're still there, apparently, somewhere. 1592, Pope Clement commissions a new Bible. I want to do this one quickly, but it's, it's important. Sixtus had started the process of creating a new Bible. There's a lot of versions of Jerome's Vulgate floating around. A lot of less than great. Because I mean, printers are just slapping it together and selling it. So they don't always have the best versions of it. Um, so he said, we need a legit good version of this. Clement finally finishes the job in 1592. And he said, let's, let's get back to the Greek and Hebrew. Let's, let's, get, let's have a good Latin translation. Let's make sure we go back to what Jerome had done. And he moved 2nd Esdras, which is... Actually, there's so many different ways of numbering these. It's second Esdras, the second half of Esdras, or it's third and fourth Esdras, depending on how you break up first Esdras, Esdras being Ezra. So 
Whether you want to think of it as third and fourth Ezra or second Ezra, that's what's in the in the in the apocrypha, the sequel to Ezra. No, there is well, it's. It isn't. Uh, it, it's pretty clearly. It's not using the same vocabulary. It's it's not. It's not Ezra writing another book. But in the apocrypha, it's, yeah, it's Ezra writing another book. You know, um, no, it isn't. Uh, it's somebody saying, "Oh, I'm also Ezra." Be like if I wrote a sequel to the Gettysburg Address. ISIS stinks. Abraham Lincoln said. You know, that didn't sound like the vernacular of the Gettysburg Address. Anyway, and the Prayer of Manasseh. He moved both these over to uh, to the Apocrypha. He's like, somehow those have gotten them their way. I don't think those belong in the Old Testament. I believe they are part of the Apocrypha. So even the Pope is like, not really quite the same thing. Um, but because the process that started with Sixtus ended with Clement, if you hear about it, they'll refer to it as the Sixto-Clementine Vulgate Bible. And you might go, I've never heard of that. I never will hear of that. Okay, fine. If you do, that's what it is. That's this thing. And the reason it's historically important is it's the only authorized Bible in the Catholic Church from 1592 to 1979. Yeah, yeah, it deserves a while. For 400 years, this is the only Bible. If anybody uses a Bible anywhere in the Catholic Church, this is it. And I don't just mean in the United States. It's like King James. Well, that's our English Bible. Most people use it. You know, if you're in Indonesia, if you're in Africa, if you're in New York, it's this. This is your Bible. What What happened in 1979? Anybody remember? Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. Or the Vatican Council where they said, you know, maybe we should, we should try to enter the 19th century. You know, in, in, in 1979. Um, maybe it doesn't have to be in Latin. Maybe, maybe we can change some of these rites so that they're just... Maybe, maybe nuns don't have to just dress like they're out of the Middle Ages. As long as they dress in black and wear, you know, they don't necessarily have to wear the veil. When you think about it, you know, Vatican II. There's a lot of Catholics that still are upset about Vatican II. Because they're like, no, I wanted it in Latin. I liked it in Latin. It felt weird and alien in Latin, as worship should. Anyway, I'm going to end with this here. 1593, Henri IV is converted. King Henri IV. Okay, remember, Henri de Bourbon has become king, right? So over the years, he has now matured into King Henri IV of France. He's in charge of things. But he still didn't like his wife. If you remember, they weren't, they weren't close. Um, she helped save his life during that, that debacle on St. Bartholomew's Day in, in 72, but they haven't lived together for years. They don't like each other. He really likes his mistress, because she's a babe. Newball young thing, yes, he loves his mistress. His mistress is great. His mistress is also Catholic. So what do you do? You're a Huguenot king, the first Protestant king of France. And you're in love with this Catholic, and you can't seem to stop the fighting. Everybody's fighting all over the place. What do you do? She said, tell you what, the best way to finally end the wars of religion is for you to become Catholic. Now, you did this once before under duress. Do this not under duress. Once and for all, repudiate Protestantism. Be a good Catholic. So Henri says, all right, I am no longer a Huguenot. I'm no longer Protestant. In fact, you know, Paris is well worth a Mass. It deserves having a Mass set over it. Because God loves Paris. Actually, he probably never said that, but it kind of became famous. There's a lot of famous phrases in history that they didn't actually say. Um, 
Actually, somebody did say let them eat cake. It just wasn't Marie Antoinette. You know, we'll get to that. But yeah, uh, and it wasn't even let them eat cake. It was let them eat brioche. But, um, which is great because it's just a total misunderstanding of what was going on. Anyway, the point is, is, he probably never said this, but everybody was like, oh, Paris is well worth a mass. Oh, that's a nice catchphrase. We love Henri. Everything's fine after that. He's a good Catholic. Except it wasn't. And he didn't turn his back on the, on the, on the Protestants. Five years later, the Edict of Nantes is, is issued. Nothing they could do, even his conversion to Catholicism, stopped the fighting. Because strangely, the Protestants still wanted to be Protestant. Go, go figure. I mean, even after the king said, well, I turned Catholic, they didn't. I don't know what to do. So he's like, what do I do? What do I do? So he finally said, you know what? I am Catholic. I've been Catholic for five years. But I also have a passionate heart for my Huguenot brothers. So tell you what I'm going to do. Only Nixon can go to China. Only Henri the Fourth can actually say tolerance toward Protestants. We're going to officially tolerate Protestantism in France. So he says, and I'm annoying everybody equally. Nobody liked this. Nobody enjoyed this. But he's like, Catholicism is going to be the official religion of France. Officially. We are a Catholic nation. And all the Huguenots go, no, we finally got a Huguenot king and you were actually, oh. So all the Huguenots are upset. But absolute tolerance is going to be extended toward the Huguenots and other Protestants. And other Protestants. It's not just Calvinists. Anybody who's a Christian, even those pesky Waldensians and, and uh, Albigensians and weirdo Anabaptists, total tolerance. And all the Catholics go, no, no, we've been fighting them for 40 years. Why do you do this? He said, they're even going to be exempt from the Inquisition, even if they go to another nation. France will go to war if Spanish Inquisition takes a French Calvinist and judges them. We consider that an act against France, not against Protestantism. So, you're under the protection of the French crown. You're in Germany? Fine. You're a Frenchman. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal in a couple of, Why do you think? Why is that a big deal? It puts massive teeth to it. What else? Yep. Which leads to another subtle one. What else? We, that's true too. That's true too. We, so it, it implies or suggests that the rest of Europe needs to work on their tolerance levels. But it's also, again, remember, up to this time, there's not a lot of nationalism going on. It's I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm from Burgundy, I'm from now you're French. Wherever you go, you're French. Well, I'm from Picardy. I'm from Burgundy. I'm from the Lorraine. I'm from the... You're French. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Huguenot. I'm an Anabaptist. You're French. It's a crucially quiet little patriotic thing, a nationalistic thing that changes people's perception as to what it means. I'm not just some guy that happens to be in a land that my king that is over me tends to call France when he's in political meetings. I am French. Well, in its own ways. I mean, well, and, and again, part of those things comes from um, England and Germany calling all those people French and Spanish, painting with broad brushes, which then says, aha, now I'm Spanish. Um, or like with El Cid uh, 300 years ago, you, know, you, you have him going, 
I'm going to side with this Muslim king, or caliph, or what have you, and this Christian king against that Christian king. You go, because we're all Spanish. So. Paul Clement says, this crucifies me. You, you take all the things out of the Catholic Church. I can't, I can't inquisicist any French guys at all. You can't do this. Big deal. And the Huguenots are given their own castle. They're given an annual stipend from the king to protect themselves. Like, yep, I'm taking this seriously. You guys get to be Huguenots. Now, it didn't solve everything. Nobody liked it. And within 40 years, it was annulled by the by his, his successors. That's not the point. It sets a huge precedent and it ended the Civil War. The religious wars in France are over. We're entering into a completely different era of how we're going to be looking at things. There's still going to be wars, but it's going to have a different kind of flavor. Talk about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for all the people that have gone before us. And I thank you for reminding us that everything that we do today, whether it's reading Left Behind, or it's appreciating being American, as if that's a nationalistic thing, or appreciating tolerance of religion, so many of these things came out of the context. So I pray, Lord, help us to appreciate that context and all those who have gone before, and help us to remember that we are the context of the people 500 years down the pipe from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.